Our Father in heaven, we come to you in the name of Jesus, and we're grateful that we can. We pray, Father, that you would speak to us. We would not ask that you would be here. That prayer has been prayed. We believe that you are here. We ask that we would be here, that you would at this time focus us, <clears throat> that our minds would be connected with the mind of heaven, that our hearts would be open to hearing your voice. We pray that you would speak and that we would hear. Come very close to us, we pray, so that when we go from this place, we will know for myriad reasons that we have been in the presence of the God of heaven. We thank you, we love you, we wait on you, we expect you, and we pray in Jesus' name, please say with me, amen. Right around the time that the 1260-day-year prophecy was winding up, right around that time, a country doctor in Gloucestershire, England, made what really was a remarkable discovery. The 18th century was pretty much the dark ages in terms of medicine. Back then, they were still <clears throat> bloodletting. They were practicing mesmerism. Um, what was that other one? What was that one that the fellow tried on William Miller? What was that? Phrenology. That's right. Of course it was. They were doing things like that. What else was taking place? They were prescribing calomel. Uh, mercury was being used in medicine. It was the Wild West, even if you were in the East. <clears throat> so what hope was there to treat a disease that had killed 10% of the population and in many cities was killing 20%, one in five people? What hope was there? There was little hope. But that's where Edward Jenner stepped up. He started immunizing people against smallpox using cowpox. Of course, his methods were ridiculed. Cartoons portrayed people who had been vaccinated as having the head of a cow. But today, Jenna is widely regarded as the one person on earth who has saved more human lives than any other person in history. Imagine that a country physician who saw there was a need and thought about it and observed and said, I think I can do something to make a difference. In step Edward Jenner. And 200 years later, it was said that smallpox had been eradicated. One man and millions saved. It only takes one person to make a colossal difference in the world or in somebody's world. You have your Bible or a device, open up to 1 Samuel and chapter 14. 1 Samuel and chapter 14, we start in verse 1. Thanks for this <clears throat> medical missionary work right there. All right, you got there, 1 Samuel chapter 14. Before we start reading, the king had rashly offered a sacrifice that he was not sanctioned to offer. He was too impatient to wait for the man of God to arrive. Samuel did arrive, but as God works, he arrived on God's timetable and not on King Saul's timetable. And with 36,000 chariots arrayed against Israel, along with 6,000 horsemen and people, and the Bible says, as the sand which is on the seashore in multitude, Saul is formed by Samuel, Saul is informed by Samuel that his kingdom is not going to continue. Upon which communication, the prophet leaves the king to his own devices. Saul does a head count. He discovers he has 600 men on his side against 36,000. Things are not looking good. Israel was disheartened and dispersed. Israel was diminished and they were disarmed and they were no longer in any way the masters of their own destiny. The text says that there were no smiths in all of Israel. If you wanted something sharpened, like a spear, you had to go to the Philistines to get it done. The Bible says there was no spear, neither was there a sword found in the hand of any of the people that were with Saul and Jonathan. Only Saul and Jonathan possessed weapons. So, two armed men, 598 unarmed men, against 36 
36,000 of the enemy. Wait, 36,000? Hold on a second. 36,000 chariots and more people than anyone could, could count. Oh my, things could hardly be more desperate. But the saying goes, cometh the hour, cometh the man. These desperate times called for decisive action. So where was the man? The king was starting to come unhinged, and rather than doing something about it, he chose to do nothing about it. Chapter 14 finds our man sitting under a pomegranate tree. Far from taking the lead, he is taking the back seat, hoping that somehow the problem is going to miraculously fix itself. And so we will read chapter 14, starting in verse 1. It says, Now it came to pass upon a day that Jonathan, the son of Saul, said to the young man that bare his armor, Come and let us go over to the Philistines' garrison that is on the other side. But he did not tell his father. And Saul tarried in the uttermost part of Gibeah under a pomegranate tree, which is in Migron. And the people that were with him were about 600 men. And Ahiah, the son of Ahitub, Ichabod's brother, the son of Phinehas, the son of Eli, the Lord's priest in Shiloh, wearing an ephod. And the people did not know that Jonathan was gone. And between the passages by which Jonathan sought to go over unto the Philistines' garrison, there was a sharp rock on the one side, a sharp rock on the other side. The name of the one was Bozes, and the name of the other was Sene. The forefront of the one was situated northward over against Michmash, the other southward over against Gibeah. And Jonathan said to the young man that bear his armor, Come, and let us go over unto the garrison of these uncircumcised. If he had stopped right there, the armor bearer, I'm thinking, would have turned around and fled. Are you out of your mind? There are two of them and an army. Wait, there are two of us. I've been listening to Dr. Schwartz. There are two of us and an army full of them. And you are saying, let's just skulk on over there underneath the Mediterranean sun. I didn't sign up for a suicide mission. Too hard. The enemy is too great. And look at me. I'm just an armor bearer. By definition, I'm just going to stand around while you do your thing. And while I admire you, Jonathan, I don't admire you that much. I'm not crazy. But Jonathan didn't end the sentence there where I left off. Jonathan said, let's go over and take him on. And then he said, it may be that the Lord will work for us. For there is no restraint to the Lord. To save by what? Many or by what? Or by few. You see, what's interesting here is we could give uh, Jonathan the credit for wiping out an army, for winning a decisive victory, for turning the enemy on the heel and driving them out of town. We could do that. But it wasn't Jonathan's idea. The impulse was placed in Jonathan's heart by God himself. So God was saying, I've already figured out how to take care of these Philistines. I'm just looking for somebody who was willing to go and be my man. It's already planned. I've already figured this thing. But what I don't have out of the 600 is somebody willing to step up and go and be used by God. Jonathan responded to the call of God's Holy Spirit. You see, Saul figured that everything was disastrous. Saul and his 600 were essentially waiting there to be wiped out. Ah, but the Holy Spirit of God was striving in that arena. God already knew what he was going to do. God's Spirit was waiting to do a great thing. Just go reading through Kings and Chronicles about the many times that God intervened and miraculously the enemy was turned away. Miraculously, God sent a noise on one occasion. 
There was Sennacherib, Rabshakeh was there as the messenger, and he was saying to Hezekiah, we are about to wipe you out. And it was over for Judah until trouble at home caused Sennacherib's men to turn around and go back. And Sennacherib, once he got home, was killed. God had it figured out. He was simply looking for somebody to work in cooperation with him. It's very often when it looks like there's nothing going on, it's often that things look hopeless when the Spirit of God is getting ready to do something spectacular. I grew up 40 minutes from one of the best left-handed surfing breaks on the planet. Literally. No, no, that's not hyperbole. I was on a plane the other day sitting next to a fellow, a travel agent from Malibu, and I said, New Zealand, and he said, Raglan, and I about jumped out of my seat. I didn't know that anybody knew where Raglan was. Turns out this guy is a travel agent who arranges, uh, his specialty is surfing trips. He says, I've been in New Zealand many times. I've been all over Raglan, named off a few other places, and I said, oh, yes, even though I'd never heard of them myself. Sure. The surfing is legendary, legendary. Left-handed break, rocks everywhere, black sand, doesn't look like Hawaii, but it's, it's good surfing. Now, now, I never did learn to surf in New Zealand, never even really attempted to surf in New Zealand. But I was in Florida once, and a, and a, and a, and a, and a young lady who was an adept, an expert surfer, as a matter of fact, offered to teach me. You know, the, the challenge for me was getting on the board. These things are about as wobbly as anything. No one told me. And I, I did say to her, so if by some miracle of God, I happen to get up on the board, what do I do then? And she said, no, that's the easy part. All you have to do is catch the wave. And the wave will do the work. How many people here have flown a kite? Let me just raise your hand if you've ever flown a kite. Yeah, I, yeah, see, but I got you. You've never flown a kite. The wind flew the kite. What did you do? You say to a four-year-old, hold this and walk off. It's the easy part. Ours is just to catch the wave. And the Holy Spirit is the wave. God is working. I said to this woman who was teaching me to say she was a, she was a terrible teacher. Which is another way of saying, I was a terrible student. I said, what if I miss the wave? She said, no problem. Look. And I looked out there, and she said, there's going to be another one along in just a few seconds. They just keep on coming. Listen, when it comes to soul winning, when it comes to evangelism, when it comes to outreach, God has not invited us to invent the wave, just to catch the wave. We don't initiate spiritual interest, but we work where God is already working. That person who walks into your practice, you don't. You may not have stopped to realize this, or maybe you have, but God is working in that person's life. That person who's sitting down in your chair when you're up to your elbows and, and molars and wisdom teeth, that person has a spiritual need. Whether she or he realizes it or not, God is working in that person's life. And our job as Christians is to pray and figure out where God is working and when God wants us to walk through an open door. Not a lot of point kicking a hole in the wall. But when God opens a door, it's for us to go through. And imagine if you saw five or ten or twenty or a hundred people in a day, depending on what it is you're doing, and you got to the end of the day and you said, no, I don't believe God was working in even one life. That's unlikely, isn't it? You can know that each person brings with themselves a spiritual itch. And ours is to pray to God and say, God, how in the world do we scratch? There are 7.6 billion people on planet Earth right now. Probably 7.7 .7 by now. And if you go to Indianapolis in a couple of years at the general conference session... You know that at those places, you, I don't know if you know this, but of course there are medical people there, and, and, and because of what has happened at recent general conference sessions, 
they're going to have some specialist, uh, specialist, specially trained specialists, specialists, helping with a certain Adventist problem. Because what happens is this. Somebody's going to announce, and brothers and sisters, praise the Lord, there are now officially 22.5 million, 23, 21, 24 million Seventh-day Adventists in the world, and all over the auditorium, there will be church members who, who dislocate their shoulders by, by reaching around and enthusiastically patting themselves on the back. And it's a phenomenon. 22 million, whoa, up, there it goes. There are 7.6 billion people in the world. And while I will say amen as loudly as anybody, when we recognize that there are now 20-whatever-million, and if we counted like some denominations count, we'd be counting 33, 35, 37 million, that leaves a colossal amount of people who are outside the church and the majority, the vast majority of those, are outside God. Two and a half billion people on the planet call themselves Christian. And that is taking the most generous definition of the word Christian into account. Think about your hometown. How many people? And how many people of them know Jesus as their Lord and Savior? How many of them are in church? And of those in church... How many of them are serious about their faith? It is a colossal task. Some would say that we are, have undertaken an impossible mission. But it cannot be impossible, and it is not impossible, because we have the assurance of the Bible that the everlasting gospel will go unto what? What's the next word? Every nation and kindred and tongue and people. Everybody is going to hear. Will, not maybe, everybody will. No one is saying everybody's going to convert, but everybody is going to have the opportunity to accept Jesus as their Lord and Savior. And man, you want to be part of that. When I was a kid, I, five years old, I played in my first football team. Now, this is not American football where they wear pads and helmets and so forth. This is, this is for real men, and we, we had none of that. Five years old, first team, wore my black jersey with the little white V and the white bands on the sleeves. Oh, boy, was I as proud as anything. And when I was seven years old, I got sick. Dr. Drury came to my house. There I was up in the living room laying on the old sofa. And Dr. Drury told my mother he thought I had meningitis. Well, the joke was on him. I didn't. I had pneumonia. And so they carted me off to hospital. And I had to spend a few. I spent my seventh birthday in the hospital. And then as soon as I got out of there, I said to my mother, well, this Saturday, I've got to go over and play because we have a game on. And my mother had to break it to me that there would be no football for me. And so that weekend, I sat in the car. My mother and I sat in the front seat of our old, uh, what was it, a Chrysler Valiant. The, most, the, the, the nearest thing would be a Plymouth Valiant, if you remember those old things from, the, from, the, from, from long ago. And there I was sitting in the front of the car, watching my team play. And we were such little kids at the time that we played across the field, not long ways on the field. We were too little to run the whole length of the field, you know. And it was galling to sit in the car and watch the team play. I wanted to be out on the field. It's a disaster having to be on the sideline knowing that the action is out on the field. Ladies and gentlemen, you don't want to be sitting on the sidelines. The action is out on the field. And if you like spectating, I can promise you, it isn't nearly as much fun as being out there in the thick of things. In 1 Samuel chapter 14, the church had lost sight of its mission. Instead of being the head, it was the tail. Oh my goodness, history has a sorry habit of repeating. And I don't want to overstate this any, I don't. But I learned from a ministerial secretary one day, a very wise fellow, who was speaking to me about churches. And he said, John, I have learned in my ministry that a pulling horse does not kick. And if you find a congregation where there are people kicking, then you have found a congregation where there are people who are not pulling. And that's a challenge. Imagine being the devil. I mean... Uh, maybe you don't want to be, but imagine someone else was the devil. 
and being back at creation where there had been precious little sin. Admittedly, the fall had taken place just early on in the piece. But then along came children, and the devil was on a mission. What do you think he had to go through to get Cain to kill Abel? Nobody had ever murdered anybody before. This would be the first one. Can you imagine the pressure that he would have had to bear? Can you imagine how diligently he would have had to work? Can you imagine how Satan would have had to connive and scheme and employ all of his cunning? Can you imagine? You know what I imagine today? I imagine the devil at the beach on one of those chairs that lay back, sitting there wearing his sunglasses and holding a multicolored drink with an umbrella in the top. And somebody is saying to him, you're not going to work today. And the devil saying, eh, maybe, but maybe not. Why not? Because they're doing my job for me. They're on autopilot. What does it take the devil today to convince God's people to turn on each other and devour each other and bite each other and go after each other and write the most horrible things on the internet about each other? I want to tell you something. The current... Boy, I don't talk about this, but I am in now. The current stuff that's embroiling the church... God has allowed it to come for several reasons. One of which is so that we can look in the mirror at the end of a day and see ourselves for what we really are. And if what I'm hearing and what I've been reading is much of an indicator, we really are in a mess. And I'm not talking about the rights and the wrongs of this side or that side. I'm just thinking about how people are reacting. And yet God has given us a cure for all of that. You know what it is? It's ministry. It's mission. If we were as focused on mission as we ought to be, we would be able to handle disagreements which must come like Christians. And we would say, let's deal with this and then focus on what's really important. And what's really important is that there are 22 million church members in a world where there are 7.6 billion people. How much bigger does the task have to be before we take it seriously? Listen, friend, God is calling you to take it seriously because you, by virtue of having a pulse, have a certain sphere of influence. There are people who come into your life that God is saying, that one, that's somebody that you can speak to. The reason that I'm standing here today is because years ago, my brother, who had, who had, had burned up his life in a haze of marijuana smoke, was told by his living girlfriend that if we are actually going to get married, you better get a real job. And so he got a job with the hospital. And the job that he got was bathing or bathing attendant. That was his title. He was to go into the community and bathe people who could not bathe themselves. Elderly people, uh, people who were disabled and so forth. And one day he's bathing an old man, an old man, an old Seventh-day Adventist man who had started to lose his way spiritually because of discouragement. And while he's bathing this old fella, the man's wife who was there with them turned to my brother and said, So what is it you believe? And he said, what do you mean? She engaged him in a conversation. And she shared some of what she believed. And he shared some of what he believed. And he went home at the end of that day's work. And he said to his girlfriend, I think we found what we're looking for. She shared her faith. She had an opportunity. He might have said, I don't even care. That's fine. No from no leaves no. But she had something that she wanted to share. And so she shared. And he came into the church all those years ago and he can't help himself. He's been sharing his faith ever since. Israel was in a mess. The situation called for something. More accurately, it called for someone. Should have been Saul. No, not Saul. 
in the absence of decisive leadership, the Spirit of God called on the Son of the King. God did not raise up an army, at least not right away. Instead, He called one man, just one, because God knew something about the power of one. And Jonathan didn't ask permission. He didn't attend a training seminar. He didn't hold a meeting. His idea didn't go to a vote. He, driven by the Spirit of God, acted. He moved. He did something radical, something outrageous, something that under normal circumstances would have been doomed to fail. A lesser man than Jonathan would have decided the mission was too risky. We can't go ahead with that. But impelled by the Spirit of the living God, Jonathan could not shrink from acting on the burden that God had placed on his heart. God had spoken to him, and he had heard God's voice saying, Jonathan, there is no limit to the usefulness of one who, by putting self aside, makes room for the working of the Holy Spirit upon his heart and lives a life wholly consecrated to God. There is nothing in the Bible that tells you that Jonathan was a thrill seeker or a daredevil or a madman. And there is no military person, no military person who says, one against 600, let's go. It doesn't matter what you've seen in the movies. They don't think that way. And yet Jonathan went. You can imagine the conversation they had with God. God said, Jonathan, time for you to go. And I just wonder if Jonathan responded by saying, what? Lord, me against all of them, God might have said, no limit. But wait, 36,000 chariots, a multitude of soldiers against 600 of us, and we have two weapons, no limit. But I could die out there, Lord, and then what use would I be? No limit, God said, all alone. No limit to the usefulness of one. All right, I'll go. And with the boldness of Elijah before King Ahab, or of Daniel before Darius, Jonathan set his face like flint and accompanied by only an armor bearer, went up to engage the ferocity of a garrison of Philistine soldiers. They work out a plan ahead of time. Depending on how they react, we will know whether or not God is with us. If we can be confident God is with us, then we will go forward and we will take care of business. Listen, friend, the question that you have to ask is simply this. Is God with me? Is God in this? You may have an atheist you're dealing with. Is God with me in this? You may be dealing with somebody of another faith altogether without a frame of reference in Christianity. Is God with me in this? I recall chairing a church board meeting when I wore a younger pastor's clothes And thinking to myself, what I'm about to propose, this is absolutely fantastic. This is an outreach initiative that we've got to be into. But it was going to cost some money, as things do. And the dynamics that played out was fascinating. Were fascinating. Some people said, we tried that sort of stuff before. It ain't going to work. Others said, think about the cost. Think about the impact on the budget. People started making excuses as to why we'd never get church members involved And yet there were some who were saying, is God with us? Is God in this? If God is with us, who can be against us? Is God with us? That's our question. And is there any question in our minds that God is with us? Surely God is with us. And if God is leading, we must follow and not shrink back. If all you have at your disposal is a strip of leather and five little stones, that's enough to bring down a giant. If all you have is five loaves and two fish, that's enough to feed thousands of people. Jesus might say, what I want you to do is walk around a city. Do that once a day for six days, and on the seventh day, walk around seven times, and then shout. You'd feel crazy, except you'd know that God is with you. And when you followed what God said, You watched something happen that had never happened before. 
It shouldn't matter to you if there is a ferocious gale, if the wind is in your face, if the waves are looking angry, if the sea is getting in the boat, if Jesus has said, we are going to the other side of the lake, then you can believe that Christ is going to get you to the other side of the lake. If God is with you, He'll get you there. Even if He has to turn your boat into a submarine, He will get you there. Jonathan was moved by a divine impulse, an impulse to make a difference. One man, well, one man and his armor bearer, they left their camp secretly in case somebody would oppose their going. They were determined. They were determined. God is going to make a difference through us creeping forward under the warmth of the sun. Uh, they weren't far from the Mediterranean. I'm imagining a breeze was cooling them ever so. They were stealthily going forward, careful not to make a whole lot of noise. I wonder if Jonathan could hear the, 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 the rhythmic beat of his own heart. I wonder if his pulse was racing. I wonder. I wonder. And this is where he says to his attendant those amazing words. Those words that tell us we can go from this place knowing God will use every, the least of us to make a difference. He said it may be the Lord will work for us. There is no restraint to the Lord to save by many or by few. We got we to remember those words. God does not need an army to win a battle. He does not. He simply needs one man, one woman. And even then, he does not require that you are well equipped for the task. You have read where the Bible says, the Lord shall fight for you and you shall hold your peace. God gave victory to his people over 185,000 Assyrian soldiers without them having to fire a shot. All they needed to do was believe. It is God who said, my strength is made perfect in what? So if you are weak, God says, watch and see what I will do through you. Two men approaching a Philistine stronghold. They are surprised Jonathan would approach them at all. By the time he and his friend are done, 20 dead Philistines litter the area. The Philistines are plunged into confusion. The Bible says there was ultimately, and you've got to love the King James Version, a very great discomfiture. You've just got to love that language. The Philistines were routed, not because God sent a marauding army into the theater of battle, but because there is no limit to the usefulness of, tell me, one, that's all. If there's no limit, we can aim higher. If there's no limit, we can pray bigger. If there is no limit, we have every right to expect more. This gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness to all nations. And then shall the end come. It's going to happen. And we can pray and expect that it will. We can expect more from God. We can expect more from ourselves and demand that God do great things. You know that it was Ellen White who said that every city is to be entered by workers trained to do medical missionary work. Now, if we started training today, it would be decades before we'd be anywhere close. Except you and I both know there are already medical missionary workers in virtually every city. And they've been trained. They've been trained at Andrews. And they've been trained at Weimar. And they've been trained at Montemorelos. And they've been trained in Argentina. And they've been trained in Loma Linda. And they've been trained at Southern Adventist University. They've been trained. Once we figure out that God was talking about us, then God will be able to use us. And we will see God do amazing things. You are in the believer. You are in the driver's seat as a believer in your relationship with God. You have the assurance given by God through Paul that he who has begun a good work in you is faithful to perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. That's God's promise. We don't even have to bring much to the party. That's all. There is no limit to the usefulness of one who by putting self aside, that's all, makes room for the working of the Holy Spirit upon his or her heart and lives a life 
wholly consecrated to God. God wants to do more through us, with us, around us, in spite of us, than we might even know. The prophet Elisha told King Joash to pound the ground. He struck the ground three times. Elisha said, you should have kept on striking, man. Don't stop pounding. Don't ask God for little. Ask God for much. God called one man, Abraham. The promise was sure. He raised up one man, Noah, and humanity was spared. He used one man, Daniel, and Nebuchadnezzar, and Darius, and maybe you came to faith in Christ as a result. God fortified one prisoner, Joseph, and his people were prospered. He raised up one woman, a woman of courage. Her name was Jael. You remember her, the wife of Heber the Kenite. Did God use her? Yes. Ask Sisera, he of the splitting headache. God placed his hand on one woman, a wise woman of Abel and Beth Maacar, and Sheba, the son of Bichri, lost his head. Jesus spoke with one woman at a well, a woman with a very colorful resume. And as a result of that congregation, an entire city came to faith in the Christ. The least likely handmaiden was called. But when she was called, she was driven by a compulsion. Now, we have some scientists here. As you know, I'm, I'm a scientist. But, but some real scientists. And when you studied elementary science, you looked at the periodic table of elements. And the first one on the periodic table of elements was hydrogen. And then helium. And then no Googling. And then hydrogen, helium, lithium, beryllium, boron, carbon. You see what we're doing? We're winnowing you out here. We started with, like, everybody, hydrogen. <laughs> and now we're down to hydrogen, helium, lithium, beryllium, boron, carbon. What comes after carbon? Ooh, 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 I've started something. Some say nitrogen, some say oxygen. Which one is it? Oh, it's nitrogen. Nitrogen, oxygen, fluorine, neon. What's next? Because I don't know. <laughs> Neither do you. All right. Everybody just remembers the first 10. But now I'll throw one at you. What's number 55? I'll wait for you to Google. <laughs> number 55 is something called cesium. Now, cesium is not entirely unique among elements, but, but it has a, a fascinating little thing about it. They use it today in atomic clocks. It's evidently very good for that sort of thing. It has a low boiling point, very low. Uh, it's an alkali metal. And here's the fascinating thing about cesium. It has one electron on its valence shell, on its outer shell, one. So when you put cesium next to something that lacks an electron, the cesium molecule knows just what to do. That spare electron or that individual electron leaps, which is why if you put cesium in water it gets pretty exciting. Now, the explosion would be bigger, except for the fact that it happens instantaneously and therefore it doesn't allow much of the hydrogen to react. So you put cesium with, uh, uh, what's another one, with um, iodine, boom! Because that spare electron leaps. It just jumps. It does what it does because it is what it is. It doesn't say, I wonder if I should leap. It doesn't ask permission. There's no study done. It doesn't Google to leap or not to leap. It just leaps. And it does what it does because it is what it is. The little maid, when she spoke to her mistress and she said, Naaman ought to get himself down there and see the prophet. I don't know that she went away and agonized over that. There was a need. She had the answer. She spoke up. You see, we see the need in the world. We see it walking into our lives. We see it walking into our churches and into our offices and into our practices and into our schools and into our classrooms. The need is there. 
it would be a good thing if God's people were a little more like that cesium molecule. When it's introduced into the right environment, there's action. It happens. It does what it does because it is what it is. And when God has us like He wants to have us, we'll see a need and be driven to do something about that need. We're going to leave this place and drive home, fly home. I guess drive or fly, that's about all. I don't suppose anybody's walking. And if you drive or you fly, you are going to encounter lost people everywhere. And do you know they're lost? You don't know it, but you can assume that the vast majority are. I'm in an airport, and a, man, and a guy bumps into me. And I said, hey, how you doing? He said, I'm blessed. And I thought, I'll play your game. I said, blessed? He said, oh, I'm so blessed I had a heart attack that almost killed me. But I'm alive. Thanks to God, God saved me. And, and he pulled out his phone. He showed me his beautiful grandchildren. And I'm staying alive with these guys. These little guys prayed for me. As a matter of fact, he said, I've, I've, got, the, I've got my offering envelope. I've got my story right here. Why don't you read this? I've, do you know what that guy did? When he left his home that morning, he was certain to stuff his pocket full of his testimony, knowing that he was going to reach somebody, bump into somebody. And he didn't know me from Adam. He didn't know whether I'd be blessed, turned on, turned off, drawn, repulsed. He didn't know, but he was like that cesium Adam, doing what he does because he is what he is. Filled with the Spirit of God, I'll give him the benefit of the doubt. Used by God to reach somebody somehow. He's not taking a day off. He's not taking a moment off. There is no limit to the usefulness of one. And if we'll put self aside, and that's another sermon, if we'll put self aside and make room for the Holy Spirit to work in our lives, there's no limit There's no limit to what God can do. Those are big words, but they must be true because they were breathed by God himself. No limit. All it takes is one. Of course, if the one goes wrong, we saw what happened in heaven long ago. Just took one, one angel, Lucifer, and all that God had created was jeopardized. It took one dissenting voice, and before long, the ten were arrayed against the two, and consequentially, Israel spent 40 years in the wilderness. It took one disciple, one kiss, one unconverted heart, and the Savior was left to hang on an old rugged cross. But friends, let's twist this before we finish this. It's imperative that we take the opportunities to minister. It's imperative. Not only will lost people be saved, but we'll be saved too. Because sharing Jesus with others reacts upon you, I believe, even more than it reacts upon others. But what would it be like to share something that you don't have? You see, we can understand something today about the power of one. The earth was in a mess. And yet God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. One man. All it took was one man. All it took was one life. All it took was one trip to Calvary. One Savior laying down on a cross and stretching his arms out. All it took was one. And as a result, we need not be defeated in our spiritual lives. As a result, we need not be burdened by sin and guilt. As a result of what that one man did, sin need not have dominion over us today. We can go forward confident that God is living his life in us, that we are strengthened in the inner man by the power of his might. We can be confident that salvation is ours because of one, the power of one, the power of a decision for Jesus, the power of a surrender to Christ, the power of an invitation. Take my heart, Lord. I cannot give it to you, but take it and make it yours. And when your life and the Christ's life are connected and bound up inextricably with each other, then you walk confident. Then you walk sure. Then you walk forgiven. Then you walk redeemed. Redeemed. You know what I know? I know that in any group of people this size, there are far too many people who know that they're not one with Christ, that know that if the role was called up yonder, they would not be there. Come on, friend. Have you learned something about the power of one? The power of Jesus. The power of what he can do in your life.
For it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do for His good pleasure. Have you let Him do what He wants to do? Have you let Him have you? Maybe you have. Undoubtedly, many people in this place tight with the Lord. Amen. But think about those that are not. Friend, God wants to use you. Before He wants to use you, He wants to have you. He wants to take away your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. Who can do that? Just one. Jesus can. Do you know something about the power of one? Do you know what Jesus wants to do in your life? I just came back from South Africa right back on Monday. We were in Pretoria conducting meetings, and we took a medical team with us. And my goodness, the amazing things that happened. And you want to say, oh, oh, amazing. How The amazing is the one-to-one, the young lady at the AIDS clinic who spoke to our, our medical person and said to her, you know my problem? My problem is that I don't know God. I need to know God. Can you help me to know God? She said, funny enough, yes, I can. And led that young person to Christ. She experienced the power of Christ, not by works of righteousness that she had done, but by His mercy, she was saved. Friend, how is it with you today? I'm wondering how it is with you. How is it with you? How is it with you? You know what I learn as I travel, sometimes in other parts of the world, sometimes just right here in our own backyard? What I learn is this. That as much as we need to know the 2,300 days, and we do, and as much as we ought to be clear about the state of the dead, and we should, and we need to be, and as much as we need to understand the second coming and not be fooled by false theories about that, and that's important, what I'm learning more and more and more There's a massive amount of God's people who need to be clear on the most important things. They being the love of God and the power of God's Spirit in your life and the ability of God to transform you and give you hope where otherwise you might not have hope. Have you come to understand experientially the power of one? One Lord. One faith, this word, one baptism, surrender to Jesus. Have you come to that place? Have you put self aside and allowed God's Holy Spirit to fill you up? And when you do, you'll never be the same. When you do, people see Jesus in you. When you do, your ministry has a power that can never, ever be denied. There is no limit to the usefulness of one who by putting self aside makes room for the working of the Holy Spirit upon his or her heart and lives a life wholly consecrated to God. You find that in the book, The Desire of Ages, on page 250. It's a beautiful, powerful quote. And then you find this in another book called Christ's Object Lessons. Listen. When we submit ourselves to Christ... The heart is united with his heart. The will is merged in his will. The mind becomes one with his mind. Our thoughts are brought into captivity to him. We live his life. This is what it means to be clothed with the garment of his righteousness. He is the only one you need. Jesus He can do in your life what you've seen Him do in the lives of others. He can use you in ways that you may never have even imagined. And He's waiting to. Imagine if we went from here filled with a purpose to share Christ wherever we can. To pray with patience. To make literature available. You know, just I I shouldn't, but I, I shall. A young lady in Chattanooga went to the dentist's office. She took her daughter And there was a little plastic folder offering free it as written Bible studies. She said, I'll take one. She mailed it in. Bible workers showed up at her doorstep. A few months later, she was baptized. A few months later, she came with us to the Philippines and preached an evangelistic series. And that's because somebody in a medical environment said, yeah, I'll I'll go out on a limb a little bit and give somebody the opportunity to know Jesus. So imagine if we went out on a limb a little bit. Imagine if we did that.
and asked the question and prayed the prayer and made the inquiry. Imagine. But imagine if we did that filled with the Spirit of God, driven by the power of one. Imagine if people heard more than our words. Imagine if they saw Jesus in us. There's no limit to what God can do when he has you. And if you're starting at the front end of a, of, of a, of a career in medicine, imagine the possibility of God has your career and uses everything you do to bless others spiritually as well as physically. I believe Jesus is coming back soon. Can you say amen? He's coming back soon. And he wants us all to experience something about the power of one, the power of Christ in our life. It can be ours. It must be ours. We've got to go today believing that Jesus will do in us what we can never do in ourselves. And when he does, everything will be different. We're going to pray together, and we're going to pray to that end. Bow your head with me as we pray. Our Father, in Jesus' name we look to you. In Jesus' name we appeal to you. In Jesus' name we pray, pleading the merits of his shed blood. Asking, dear God, that we would believe in what you can do through us. That we, by your grace, would allow you to use our influence in a way to let people know the God of heaven. And Lord, beyond that, I pray that we each would experience your presence in our lives in a powerful, in a mighty way. I pray, Father, that the struggling soul today would lay hold on Jesus and his righteousness. I ask you, Lord, that doubt would never be permitted to, to, to overwhelm us. That we'd always see Jesus and focus on Christ and believe that he is our strength, our power, our goodness, our righteousness. Today we believe in the power of Christ in our lives. We believe in salvation and its reality in our experience. Lord, as we go, make us workers. Make us missionaries. Make us witnesses. But Father, when we go from here, make us Christians. Make us yours. We thank you. We love you. We want to love you more. And we praise you. In Jesus' name we pray. Please say, Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.